All right, so as you know, most sermons kind of have three points, and I have a hard time coming up with three points, so, so I came up with the ABCs. So I think this sermon, A, shows the authority of the author, the author not being Luke, the earthly author, but the author of all creation, that'd be Christ. Number two, the blessings that are bestowed, and then the corresponding curses that he places on it as well. So as you know, let's, let's first start with the purpose of the book of Luke, as the purpose of the other Gospels that were written, is to um, prove who Jesus Christ was, that he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. Uh, he was the Savior of the world. And during his walk on earth, and even in all the Gospels that are presented recording that, um, he gives many proofs. I mean, his healings were proof, his, um, his uh, miracles over nature, his, uh, his resurrecting the dead. But probably the biggest proof of who he was was his teaching, what he taught. He taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one with authority because he had that authority. Scribes and Pharisees, when they would teach, they would quote other scribes and Pharisees, kind of like we quote other pastors and stuff, you know, he never did that. You know, he taught with absolute authority. As a matter of fact, on the very beginning of his, uh, his earthly ministry, Mark records in chapter 1 that after he had, he had preached in the uh, synagogue in Capernaum there, you know, there was a man with an unclean spirit and he drove that unclean spirit out. When all that happened, the, the, uh, Mark records that they said this about him. And they were all astonished at his teaching, for he taught them not as, as one, he, but he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And further they said, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And this was his very beginning of his earthly ministry. Even lost people could see there was something different about him. Uh, his teachings, like I said, were definitive. They were authoritative, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they were taught with divine, absolute authority. And his teachings were on many topics. I mean, he taught of God's sovereignty. He taught of creation. He taught of the miracles that, uh, uh, that God had done for them in the past. He, he, he taught of God as a sovereign ruler. He, he taught that God is a merciful and gracious God. But he also taught of heaven and hell. More on hell than heaven. Uh, but he taught of many things. And probably the thing he taught about most was himself and who he was. That he was truly God incarnate. And this made the religious people of time extremely angry. Uh, they hated him for it. Obviously, and let me just let's turn to a couple of uh, uh, times when Jesus and the Jews or Jesus and the Pharisees kind of interacted because the Jews knew exactly who he was claiming to be. He didn't try to hide it in any way or mask it. But turn with me to John. Well, turn with me to John 8 first. So let me just read from John uh, 5, 17. Um, when the Jews were trying to... Um, get something to arrest him for, and they saying he was working on the Sabbath, and they were criticizing him for that. 
Jesus answered them in John 5, 17. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. My father, God, right? And he says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they knew exactly who he was claiming to be. And turn with me now to John 8, 51, because this interchange is really pretty fascinating um, uh, between the Jews and Jesus as well. Um, in John 8, 51, Jesus starts by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So they're thinking, okay, well, who are you that can make that claim? I mean, you, if I do what you tell me to do, I'm never going to die. Hmm. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. He said, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Hmm. He says, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom I say, he is our God. But you have not known him. He's telling them they do not know the God. He says, I know him. If I was to say I did not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. In verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Wait a minute, Abraham's dead, right? And I'm, Jesus is there right then. So how did Abraham see him? And so the Jews said to him, you know, you're not 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So he is claiming that he was present even before Abraham, and he's using the words, I am, the words that God used. He is claiming to be God. The Jews knew exactly who he was, and they rebuked him. They hated him. They reviled him for it. In John chapter 10, one more uh, kind of interchange between the, uh, the Jews and, and Christ. He said, um, they, were, they were questioning Jesus again. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? Tell us that. I mean, they've been telling them all along, but they just didn't get it. But they're saying, tell us plainly, are you the one? And in John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, he's claiming to be one with the Father. And what was their reaction in the next verse? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So they understood exactly who Jesus was. He taught with that divine authority. He, 
he made predictions. He predicted his death. He predicted his resurrection. He, he taught them that he was the atoning sacrifice for their sins. Um, he said he's coming back again uh, in glory to judge. Um, he taught that mankind was in a, in a state of rebellion against him. They were at enmity with him. And he, and he taught that because mankind, because he was the light of the world that had come into the world. But men loved the darkness better than light. So he taught that he was a good shepherd, as he just talked about, that, that his father knew his, that the sheep know him, he knows his sheep, the father gives him the sheep, the father sovereignly draws those sheep, as in um, 644, where he says no one can come to the father unless, it is, uh, unless the father draws him. So he taught it by grace and by mercy that you are saved, not by anything that you could do was completely opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. You know, it was not by grace and mercy. It was all by the law and what you did and how you became righteous before God. So they hated him for it. They hated him because he said, number one, uh, the Father saved. It's all by grace and mercy. It's not what you do that makes the difference between you and your Father. Um, so everything he taught was dramatically opposed to the culture at the time. It was dramatically opposed to all human thinking at the time. Um, and then, even as today, Jesus teaches with authority. Then, as in today, everything that Jesus teaches is countercultural. Everything Jesus teaches is opposite the prevailing worldview. Everything he teaches is not part of conventional wisdom. Everything he teaches is not politically correct. Uh, everything he teaches makes you examine the motives for everything you do. So why is it so difficult? Why did the Jews have such a difficult time in, in understanding? Why does the world have a difficult time in understanding Christ and what he teaches. Well, it's because he teaches godly wisdom. The world has human wisdom. And as Paul explains that to us a little bit better in 1 Corinthians, we've heard these voices as well. In chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And in chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person, the unregenerate person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. So everything Jesus taught is folly to those who are perishing. Okay? He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So essentially the world is blinded to the godly wisdom that Christ taught. Nonetheless, he taught with absolute authority. Everything he said was absolutely true and perfect. And our passage today kind of illustrates the difference between our earthly wisdom and how we view things and godly wisdom and how we view things. Because if you read the passage today, in verse 20, when Jesus says, the poor, the hungry, those that weep, they're hated and reviled are blessed. Now, the world would look at that a little bit differently. 
And then he says, those that are rich and satisfied and happy and well-liked and popular, they're cursed. They're cursed. That's exactly opposite of how we would view that in our natural state. That's exactly how a lot of us would kind of look at it because we still have that remaining flesh and that just doesn't seem right to us. But it's true. But it's true. So again, Jesus' teachings, absolutely authoritative, never politically correct, never part of conventional wisdom. He gave the Jews at the time and the Pharisees the truth. They hated it. He gives the world the truth now. They hate it as well. Okay. So what we're going to look at today is, is Luke's kind of abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is... Uh, Matthew records it in greater detail in Matthew chapter 5 through verse 7. But Luke just has an abbreviated version here. And even though these teachings are of Christ and the world doesn't, doesn't use them, the world doesn't believe them, philosophers, scholars, smart people will look at this part, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and say how beautiful it is. Jesus is teaching this, these good ethics. This is how everybody ought to act. Well, Jesus didn't just lay out some ethics and kind of hope people would follow them. You know, Jesus' mission was to come to seek and save the lost. He knew that man was destined for eternal damnation unless they repented and believed. Those were his first words. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> he taught that... Um, that although things appear one way to the world, they appear a different way to the Lord. So the religious people of his time hated him. Uh, but scholars today will look at this and kind of think it's a thing of ethics, but it has nothing to do. It's really a sermon about salvation. It's a sermon not how to be saved, but who is saved and who is not saved. Those that are blessed, those that are cursed, the woe. It's, a, it's a, just a pretty clear picture that he paints for us. Now, if you look through the, the longer version in Matthew of the Sermon on the Mount, and you look at, at Luke's version, there, there are some discrepancies there. And you'll look at it. Some things are worded differently. Um, they sound a little different. Uh, different words are used. Maybe some are you think are kind of incomplete. But there's, there's several reasons for that. And number one, I just want to mention these. So if you're reading through those, you'll kind of have an idea. Uh, Jesus, when he gave this sermon, spoke in Aramaic. Luke and Matthew both recorded this in Greek. So just from a language standpoint, one author may use a different synonym for the same word. But the meaning is not changed at all in there. But it will sound a little different when you're reading it through. Also, like any good preacher, Jesus would probably make a point and then repeat it again in another way, using different words in a different sentence, but meaning the same point. So you may record that in a different way as well, too. Also, you think about this sermon here, some people, most people agree, most scholars agree that this is the same sermon recorded in Matthew, but you know, Jesus preached for three years, and he taught on the same principles on more than just one occasion. 
And so he would have taught these um, in other times as well, too. They could be part of the recorder. But none of that really makes a whole lot of difference um, because what he says, he teaches with authority. It's true. If he taught it on the Sermon on the Mount or he taught it over in Capernaum here, it's the same meaning. It's the same meaning. So in this sermon here, let's just kind of look. Okay, so who's his audience here that, he's, that, that Luke records? And if you look back just before our, our um, in verse 17 of chapter 6, it says this, Luke records, and he, Jesus, came down with them, and that would be the 12 apostles, because immediately for this he was up on the mountain and he chose his 12. So he came down with them and stood on a level place. Okay. In Matthew, it records that he went up the mountain. Okay, I don't think that matters a whole lot. So, uh, But he came down, stood on a level place, and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So his audience, when Jesus gave this sermon, would be varied. It'd be, there's probably three groups in there. There's the apostles who came down with them. Apostle just mean messenger, one that would be sent. But an apostle would also be his disciple. Disciple would mean learned one. They're learning from Christ as well, too. And in that group of disciples, there's probably, there's probably a couple different uh, commitment factors there. Some of the disciples would have been very committed and would hang with him till the end. But some of them, maybe not. Some of them were trying to learn. But as recorded in John chapter 6, 66, when the teachings got really tough, when Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and... They said, how can, you know, that doesn't sound very good to me. You know, many of them walked with him no more. And those were his disciples there. So there's disciples in all stages of commitment, just like in a church. There'll be disciples, there'll be members in all stages of, of commitment to the Lord as well, too. And then there were just the multitudes, the curious onlookers, the ones who wanted to be healed. They were looking out for number one. They were coming to see what's all the fuss about Jesus. They were just there as an oddity, as a curiosity. Um, probably heard there were some free meals that he would do, and they would come as well, too. So, there, so there's a varied audience. And, but at the end of his sermon, if you look at me in verse, 47, or verse yeah, 46 and 47, he describes, and this is, we've heard, all heard this um, uh, analogy before as well. At the end, um, he describes two different people groups. He goes, first of all, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And then he, in verse 47, he talks, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, it's like what? They build their house on the, on the rock, on the rock of Christ. And those who hear my words and don't do them is like someone who builds his house he said, without a foundation, Luke, but Matthew says, on sand. And so what happens when the storms of life, when the, the rivers rage and they wash you away? He's, the one on the rock will stand. But Christ isn't just speaking 
in an ethical sense that if you kind of do what I say, you know, you, you'll be able to weather the storms of life. You know, you'll be able to get through the storms of life. Now, that is true that the faith in Christ will help you weather the storms of life, of which there will be many. But he's really talking about something a little more of greater magnitude. Uh, he's talking about when the time of judgment comes, can you weather that storm of judgment? Are you truly listening to me and obeying me or not? That's what he's saying there. So he's got these same two kind of people groups in mind when he starts out with, um, with our verses for today in uh, verse 20. So again, here's the two words that he uses. He uses the word blessed and he uses the word woe. The word blessed in Greek is makarios. It means divine favor, supreme blessedness. Best possible outcome. If you're blessed, you're good. The word woe, or in Greek is, I don't know how you say it, owie or something like that. That sounds good. Which basically means a calamity or the worst possible outcome. And so, just so you understand the nature of that word woe and how Jesus has used it, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, he doesn't use the word woe. He doesn't actually mention the woes in that. But he mentions them later in the book of Matthew. Uh, and this is how he uses them. So you understand this is not just um, he's wishing that something bad will happen. And the blessings are not he's just kind of wishing blessings on people. He's declaring that. In Matthew 23, 13, Christ says this. And he uses that word woe typically against the scribes and the Pharisees. Describing them as hypocrites. He also uses, pronounces a woe on cities that had seen miracles and did not repent. Okay, but here's typically how he uses it. Matthew 23, verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for this is what you do. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for, neither, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So he's saying, you're not part of the kingdom of heaven. You're a hypocrite. You are not part of my people. And not only that, you're keeping others from entering the kingdom by your teaching. And then in verse 15, he, he repeats something. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea to make a single proselyte. That would make a Jewish convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So he's pronouncing this woe on the scribes and Pharisees. He's calling them children of hell. They are not in the kingdom, and they are keeping other people from getting out of the kingdom. So it, he's, this is a strong word. This isn't just, you know, woe. You know, this is, you know, woe because you are not part of my kingdom. And in the same manner, he uses it here in Luke in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And these blessings and curses, you know, the, the, the Jews and a lot of his audience would be Jewish, and they would really understand what that meant because, you know, in Deuteronomy, um, Moses, through God, told them, you know, he declared the blessings and the curse. He says, if you follow me and you make me your Lord and you do not chase after other gods, I will bless you. 
I will bless you temporally. I will bless you with health, you know, uh, happiness. You'll have a certain standing among the nations. You'll, you'll do well. But if you don't, if you chase other gods, I will curse you with plagues and, and uh, death and uh, being conquered by other nations. So they, they can understand this difference between blessings and curses. So uh, they are saying, again, Jesus' authoritative teaching here is stating and declaring a fact. He's not wishing blessedness on these people or wishing woes on these people. He is stating these people are blessed. This is what it looks like. These people are cursed. This is what it looks like. And so he gives four blessings and four curses, okay, in, chapter, in verses 20. The four blessings on the righteous and the benefits, and then the four curses that he places on the wicked and their consequences. Uh, and again, they seem, when you read it, they seem contrary to our human wisdom, contrary to our, our thing. Again, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated are blessed. And what? The rich and the satisfied and the happy and the popular are cursed. Again, exactly opposite to our human thinking. So what is he, what is Christ saying here? Okay, let's go. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. All right, poor, that word poor, Greek, means tochus. It means reduced to beggary. It means indigent. It means having nothing. Okay, so in what way is being poor blessed? I mean, in our minds, that just doesn't make sense, does it? They were perceived, even in Christ's days, being cursed. Okay, remember Job's friends, when God took everything away from him, he says, you're cursed by God. You did something, you're cursed by God. So he was, when he was in his lowest state, where he had nothing but sores all over his body, he, uh, he was considered cursed by his friends. That's the way the world looks at it. So poverty in itself, though, is not a blessing. So, so what does Christ mean here? Uh, blessed are the poor. Well, I think Matthew clears it up a little bit because in Matthew, Matthew's parallel passage in chapter 5, verse 3, he describes it as the poor in spirit. Okay. Now, what does that mean, poor in spirit? I mean, that's another question. What, what's he talking about, poor in spirit? Well, uh, those that have a right view of themselves, those that are humble enough to understand who they are in relation to a holy God, those that know that their condition is hopeless and they have been reduced to beggars at the mercy of God for any type of salvation. Those would be the poor in spirit. And that would be demonstrated in, in um, Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the Pharisee well, we know what the Pharisee did. Tax collector, all he could do was bend his head and just have mercy on me, O Lord, I'm a sinner. That's the poor in spirit. That's the humility that he describes as part of those that are in the kingdom of heaven. They understand that they are at the mercy of a holy God. And he says that yours is the kingdom of God, meaning present tense, it presently is the kingdom of God. You are part of the kingdom of God and all all the benefits thereof. But he's speaking of poor in spirit. He's speaking of humility. He's speaking of, of being humble. 
And then he says, blessed are you, in verse 21, who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Okay, again, he, he's hungry, probably not lack of food. Okay, and Matthew makes it a little bit clear in his views when he says, those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those of you that know they've been reduced to a spiritual beggar, but they hunger for that righteousness. They hunger and thirst like, like David did, like David describes in Psalm 42, 1, where he says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. They have that sincere inner desire to know God and his righteousness. In Psalm 63, 1, he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. So this is a sincere, a sincere desire to know God. A sincere desire to know God. And they said they will be satisfied. So how, are they, how will they be satisfied? Because we know that, that we, although we may desire righteousness, there is no righteousness we can obtain on our own. Okay. So how are we going to be satisfied? We'll be satisfied by Christ's righteousness, by his imputed righteousness. That is how, and that satisfied, that word satisfied there, that Greek word, Cortazo, it's a term that's used to fatten animals. And when you consider it, when you can think about that, when animals eat, they eat until they're satisfied. They don't stop and say, I think I'm going to lay off a few of those grains because my waist is getting a little bit. They don't have that capacity. They just have that desire. They're going to eat until they're satisfied. And that's the way he describes them as well. In Psalm 23, 1, you know, uh, he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He will supply them with everything they need. Those uh, symbolize those that are in the kingdom. And he says, What about blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, Matthew says, Blessed are those that mourn now, for you shall be comforted. So what... What are we weeping over? What are we weeping over? That, that's the big question here. And it's been debated, and you can see it in different commentaries, but, but why would we be weeping, and what are we going to weep over? Well, we're weeping over our sin because we have that correct understanding of how severe sin is and how it offends a holy God and our relationship. How our sin, as we've talked about before, is it nails and Jesus' cross. That sin offends a holy God. So we understand we have nothing to offer and we mourn over our sin because some people, many people, most of the world does not mourn over their sin. They may consider sin as some type of minor infraction, but even those who are pretty comfortable with themselves and think they're saved will maybe say, well, yeah, I did that and that was wrong, but God's going to forgive me anyway. Um, that is not evidence of true salvation right there because we should mourn over sin. We know what that sin does. We should, we should desire to repent of that sin. Um, 
Paul calls this godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians, he says that that leads to repentance, that godly sorrow. It's, it's, it's something that uh, is deep inside you. You mourn for your sin, uh, not because you got caught, not because it hurt somebody else, but because it offended God. And that type of sorrow is a sorrow that leads to repentance and then unto salvation. Um, it's in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, if you want to look it up. And James also, in his book, says, Be wretched, mourn, and weep. You probably remember that verse in chapter 4. Um, you know, he is speaking to sinners at that time. And he says, this is how you should do that. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So in order to do that, you must humble yourself. You must recognize your sin for what it is, an offense to a holy God. Um, and, and said that worldly grief, that worldly grief will lead to repentance and salvation. And he says, for those who do that, will, for you shall laugh. I mean, that seems kind of a funny word to use there as well, too. That word could be translated rejoice. Uh, is that be happy, be ecstatic about it. Um, and because and we know this, and the psalmist tells us that weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So our weeping over our sin will eventually turn to that joy that he has said. So now we have people that are poor, that they, they understand they're standing before God, they understand they're spiritually poor, they're spiritually bankrupt, they're beggars, they have nothing. They're humble before a God, but they hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, and they then um, weep and mourn over their sin. He said, that's how saved individuals, that's how children of the kingdom view themselves, and that's how they are. And then he says this, in verse, the next blessing that he lists is how the world looks at those children at the children of God. So the first three are really how, the, the, how uh, those that are saved, believers, are, are, uh, look at themselves. And the other one is how the world then looks at them. And it says here in verse 22, Blessed, again, are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, they revile you, they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So that's how the world views Christianity. That's how the world views true believers. Uh, and Jesus pointed that out very, very plainly to his disciples before he left this earth in John 15. He said, you know, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus tells here, if you are one of my followers, if you are persecuted, if you are reviled, if you are hated on account of the Son of Man, okay, you are blessed. You are blessed. Now, you can be hated for other reasons, okay? You can be hated because of just the plain evil you've done. 
and that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, these are these are folks that hate you because of who you are in Christ. Um, Paul reminds us in Second um, Timothy. He says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." Okay, and Peter somewhat comforts us by saying the same thing. He says, "Beloved, do not be surprised." at the fiery trial when it comes to you, comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Jesus tells us the same thing that is repeated uh, by Paul and Peter. He says, um, you know, if you are reviled, if you are hated on account of me, again, he says, leap for joy. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. How do you do that when you're hated, reviled, ostracized? How do you do that? How did, how did Paul and Silas, being chained up in prison, not knowing what tomorrow would bring, be singing hymns and praises? Okay, how did the, the apostles, when they were beaten for, for proclaiming Christ, how did... How did they rejoice that they were counted worthy? How did the, the early Christians rejoice at the plundering of all their property? Well, it's pretty simple. He goes on to say, For behold, your reward is great in heaven. They had a view past the temporal. They had a view past their circumstances at the present time. Their view was in the future. Their reward would be great in heaven. And Paul explains it really quite well, that verse we've heard. It, it classifies what, we, what believers go happen here on earth, what happens to them with respect to the world as a light, momentary affliction. And it does not compare with the eternal weight of glory, which is beyond all comparison. So they are, they can, we as believers can get past that by having a view on the future. We are not of this world. We are not of this world. An example of that kind of came on our emails. Some of you may have gotten it. I think it's from the American Family something about signing a, a petition for a young lady named Jaylene Hinkle. I don't know if you all heard this or not. Anyway, she's, probably, she's the, uh, described as the best woman's defense soccer player in America. Okay? And she was asked to play in the Women's World Cup soccer team which, as you know, won the gold medal, the best in the world. She turned down that spot because they were making them re wear rainbow uniforms in recognition of Gay Pride Month. And she, in good conscience, she described she prayed about it, she asked God, she, she couldn't do that. She couldn't do that. That would be compromising her values as well. So you can imagine what the world then speaks of her. They, not in pleasant terms by any chance. Uh, you know, they would call her narrow-minded. They, all over the news, they call her homophobes. They, you know, very, and those are some of the nicer things they would say about her. But, but the world will, they will hate you for what you believe in. But enduring the hostility for the Lord's sake, that's a sign of your saving faith. 
If you endure that, and Jesus says, those, you'll be hated by all because of me, but those who endure to the end will be saved. That is a sign of your saving faith as well. So, what about, those are the blessings. Those are, those are those that are saved. That's how Christ describes his people and his kingdom. But now he goes to those curses. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now, or, or satiated, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. <clears throat> so, one of the, uh, woe to you who are rich. So now, he had, this is kind of a parallel passage here. So, he talked about the poor, the hungry, the weeping. And now he's talking about the rich, the satisfied, and the happy. So, you have to ask yourself, what is Christ, who is he speaking of when he's talking about the rich? Woe to you who are rich. Okay, now, wealth in and of itself is not something that keeps you out of heaven, right? As a matter of fact, wealth was considered by the people of Jesus' day as a blessing to God, okay? So, so if we kind of keep in line with what Jesus is saying here, the poor he talked about were the humble, the poor in spirit, those that understood their situation with the holy God, and, and cried out to the Holy God for mercy, these rich may be those that perceive themselves as rich in the spirit, rich in the faith. It would be those that are um, uh, haughty. They're, uh, they think highly of themselves. And, and you can't help but think maybe Jesus was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees because they considered themselves the most righteous people on the earth because they followed the law and built up their righteousness to God. And they thought that they're good with God. So Jesus may be talking on a couple places. And those type of people, those that are haughty, that uh, are self-righteous, that uh, think a lot of themselves and, and, and who they are, they wouldn't hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're okay, right? I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good with God. I've done this, this, and this. I'm fine. Okay, they wouldn't mourn over their sin. No, I've done enough good things with the law. You know, I don't need to mourn over that. I don't need to worry about that, that minor infraction maybe that I did. So Jesus may be describing those who are, um, think of themselves as self-righteous. That they, they, like the scribes and Pharisees, remember they liked the greetings in the marketplaces and they liked the front seat in the synagogues and stuff like that. They were getting their reward now. Okay, but he's saying, you will not get it later. You're, you're getting your reward now, not in the future. But he may also be talking on, a, on another plane because Jesus on several occasions would say that it is more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. So what's he talking about? Talking about worldly riches, maybe. And so I think what this may be here is a warning to us to the deceitfulness of, of riches. That those riches can satisfy you to the point where you don't cry out to God anymore. 
You don't hunger for righteousness. You don't worry about your sin. You're, you're good. You're, you're, you're deceived by what you have in this earthly realm. And that would keep you away from God. So I think it might be a warning for, for that as well, for the deceitfulness of riches. And so, um, and then he puts there, uh, at the very end, he said, Woe to you when speak, people speak well of you. Now again, it's not, I think you should want people to speak well of you. I don't think you want everybody to hate you. But what we're talking about here is why are they speaking well of you? Uh, and just like why are they speaking poorly of you as a Christian? Why, why, why is that a good thing? Well, it, it compares you to the prophets, the, the true prophets and the old prophets. So he puts the ones that are blessed, he said the people spoke poorly of the old prophets. Remember the prophets, the true prophets, were they, were they loved by the Jews that they came to prophesize to? Prophets were all hated, you know. We talked about Jeremiah a few weeks ago in Sunday school. You know, God, he, God chose Jeremiah as a prophet to say his word to Israel to proclaim his truth they didn't listen to a word he said. They hated him for it. They wanted to kill him for it. Okay. Because he was teaching the truth. The false prophets, which is compared to here, is kind of just the opposite. You know, false prophets tell you what you want to hear. They want to tickle your ears, as, as Paul says in, in Timothy. That time is coming when people won't endure that sound teaching, but they're looking for those that will tickle your ears. They will say false things to make, you, um, to make you like them. That's what he's saying right here as well. You need to always speak the truth like the true prophets did. You do not need to speak falsehood like the false prophets did. The false prophets as well, of which there are many now, um, is a whole spectrum of things. In the Old Testament, it was they would prophesize things as well, but nowadays those false prophets are people that compromise the truth of the Word of God for various reasons. They will do it maybe because their church has experienced some hostility because of what they claim, because they won't compromise on certain topics that are clearly taught in the Word of God. And so many churches, many denominations, as we know, are compromising on those things. Those preachers then become false prophets. Um, so what we have to do is this. Jesus clearly lines out who is part of the kingdom and who is not. We need to be like those that, that are described as blessed. We need to certainly have a perfect, have a, a accurate view of who we are in relation to God. We need to be humble enough to understand we have nothing to offer God, that our salvation is all by grace and mercy, we will, he will give us that hunger for righteousness. He, he, he will. He will. He will make our soul pant uh, for, as a deer pants for water. He will make our soul pant after him. And we will mourn after our sin. We won't just make light of our sin. You know, but we have to expect in this world that we will see persecution. We will be hated by those who do not agree with what the truth of God's word says. 
Okay, we do not need to compromise in order to be well-liked. We do not need to compromise what we say and what we do in order to build our congregations bigger because more people will come because I'm telling them, you know, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you come here um, and you can do whatever you want because God's going to forgive you. That's not the way the truth works. So I would say this to you today. Um, Stay close to God. Examine yourself, as we all have done. Stay in the Word. Um, recognize who you are with Christ. Mourn over those sins. That will drive you to repent and be more and more like God. So, so Christ, I think we can see in this, Christ's authoritative teaching. He teaches with authority. He, uh, he, he bestows these blessings on his own, and he eating the corresponding curses on those who are not his. So um, as we take up this verse next week, then we'll just continue from here. We'll see how Jesus commands us and teaches us how do we love our enemies. That's, that's really something I have a problem with. I don't know about y'all. So all right, let's pray.